morning. Luke chapter number 19. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. And I would almost guarantee you that most of the people in this room, from the little ones to the aged ones, are going to know exactly who that we're talking about this morning uh, after we read a few verses. Very familiar passage of Scripture. In Luke chapter number 19, beginning in verse number 1, the Bible says, And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was. And he could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him, and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. When they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, forasmuch as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for Your precious, inspired Word. Lord, I pray that this morning You would do in hearts that which we are incapable of doing. Oh God, You know who's here. You know what each human heart's need is. Father, I'm sure there are saints here to be fed. Lord, there may be some in our midst, and we do not know. I know no one's heart but my own, and Lord, even it's desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. But God, you know the human heart, and there could be some sinner in need of salvation here today. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit, with his discernment, with his wisdom, with his omniscience, would take your word and apply it to each heart in a way that would glorify you and abound in fruit unto your glory. Father, we love you. We thank you for what you've done. I pray that you would be with this sweet family as they are uh, preparing possibly to see a loved one passed into your presence. I pray that you'd keep them and strengthen them. And, Father, we'll be sure to thank you. We love you, Lord. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, many of you, most of you probably, when I began to read this passage, thought immediately of the old song about Zacchaeus, the little man that went climbing up the sycamore tree. But I'd say to you this morning that as we read about the life of a man named Zacchaeus, uh, he's a lot more than a nursery rhyme. You see, the Word of God that sits before us here is absolutely inspired. It's perfect in every way. Uh, It's not just uh, the next best thing. Amen? Let me say that again. It's not just the next best thing. Amen? It's not just a copy. It is the Word of God. We have the Word of God today. And so as we read, we know that this Zacchaeus was a real man. And so though many of you may have been introduced to Zacchaeus at a young age through a a sort of a silly and jovial uh, nursery rhyme type song, uh, we're dealing with a man who literally lived, who uh, was of great prominence and of great prosperity, a man that literally was going to spend eternity somewhere, just as you and just as me are going to spend eternity somewhere. We may try to deny that. We may scoff at it. We may consider it juvenile. Uh, we may claim that that's not very enlightened. But the sheer reality of it, friend, is that all of us are going to spend eternity somewhere. 
And uh, what we do with Jesus Christ determines where. To this day, Zacchaeus is still alive. Do you believe that? Now, he's not walking this earth, but he's still alive. You know that a man uh, does not uh, get annihilated or cease to exist when he leaves this world. The Bible teaches that. And based upon the testimony of Scripture, we believe him to be in the presence of our Lord and Savior. We believe that he went from being a lost, uh, unsaved sinner to coming to know Christ as his Savior. And when I read this, I take great encouragement from the story of Zacchaeus. Because the story of Zacchaeus uh, teaches me that Christ can save even the chiefest of sinners. You see, if you were to walk through Jericho that day, of all the men around, you would have probably seen some prominent businessmen. You would have probably seen some people uh, that uh, you would have looked up to. You would have probably seen some uh, young men uh, who their uh, their looks and uh, their physique was their glory. You would have seen some old men uh, who their uh, wealth and their prosperity and their influence and power, uh, that would have been their glory. But I'll tell you one person you probably wouldn't have seen, and that would have been Zacchaeus, because he was about four foot shorter than everybody else. Amen? Zacchaeus was an unlikely individual to be the center of this story. But when I read through this, it gives me encouragement, because let me just go ahead and tell you that when I, as a ten-year-old boy, came to know Christ, I was a very insignificant person. Uh, There was no reason for me to believe that the God of glory would look down upon me. There was no reason to believe that God, through His Holy Spirit, would make known to me my need of Christ. There was no reason to believe that me, out of the uh, seven, uh, seven plus billion people in this world, uh, that I would be born in a home where my parents would take me to church, where I'd hear the Word of God, where I'd be in a Bible-believing church, and under that influence, there was no reason to believe that this little insignificant ten-year-old boy could come to know Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, as His personal Lord and Savior. There's no reason to believe that. But let me tell you something, friend, as you sit here today, there's no reason to believe you would have either. You see, we find in Zacchaeus the picture of insignificance. Oh, he had some prominence in his community. But in the grand scheme of things, who would have ever thought this little man would have come to know Christ as his Savior? I want to say a quick word just by way of introduction about Zacchaeus' situation. You see, the Bible teaches us that he lived in a place by the name of Jericho. Many of you, when you heard the name Jericho, you immediately went in your mind back to the book of Joshua, and you pictured the nation of Israel and the armies of Israel marching around the city of Jericho, blowing the trumpets and the walls tumbling. And yes, that's that very same Jericho. But can I remind you that this place, Jericho, had a loathsome promise attached to it. The Bible tells us that God put a curse on any man that tried to build Jericho. Uh, Any man that tried to build it and raise it from the rubble, that God said there'd be a curse on his home and on his family. You see, Jericho was a cursed place. Do you know that you and I, we were born into a cursed place as well? The Bible teaches us that this earth is a sin-cursed earth. The Bible teaches us that when uh, Adam sinned, that all man fell into depravity, and God didn't just put a curse on the man, and God didn't just put a curse on the woman, and God didn't just put a curse on the serpent, but even the ground itself uh, began to groan and travail until the day that Jesus comes. You see, there is a curse placed upon this uh, land and this earth, and there is a curse placed upon each and every person born in it. The Bible teaches us in the book of Galatians, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. You know what that's talking about, don't you? That's what the Old Testament says, and uh, that was uh, one of the prescribed means of uh, executing a person that lived contrary to God's law. 
Uh, you see, you and I are uh, rebellious. You and I, oh, I know this is upset all the TV preachers, but I'm going to say it anyway because it's Bible. You and I were rebellious. You and I, we are thieves. We are liars. We are murderers. We are rebels against an almighty God. We deserve to die for our sin. You say, well, I don't know about that. Well, the Bible does. It says that the wages of sin is death. Doesn't get much clearer than that, does it? You say, well, that don't apply to me. Well, I think it does, because in that very same book, it says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all are sinners. We've all been born into this cursed place. But I see that Jericho was not only a cursed place with a loathsome promise, but I see it was also a low place. This interested me. I didn't know this until I got to studying. But do you know that Jericho is the lowest city in the entire world? 846 feet below sea level. You say, preacher, that don't mean anything. Oh, it means something to me. It means something to me. And let me tell you why. Because that tells me that Jesus will go to the lowest of the lows to redeem them that will call upon his name. You see, uh, he could have gone to any city, couldn't he? In fact, you'll find that this same truth parallels all through the Word of God. All through the Word of God, everybody in Jericho is a bunch of low-down, rotten, dirty scoundrels. You can go all the way back to the book of Joshua that we just spoke of, and you'll find a woman by the name of Rahab there. The Bible tells us that Rahab was a harlot. Uh, She sold her body uh, to make ends meet. But the Bible teaches us that whenever the children of Israel sent spies into the land of Jericho to spy it out, uh, that God spoke to the heart of Rahab. And she ran into these spies, and she took and she hid them away from the uh, the various guards that were searching for them. And they looked at her and they said, I tell you what, Rahab, because your kindness that you've showed unto us, because you your faith in putting your trust in the God of heaven. You say, she didn't put her trust in the God of heaven. Sure she did. She knew who was going to win that battle. Let me tell you, there's a lot of sinners come to know Christ when they finally get it through their head who's going to win this battle. Can I tell you that if you leave, uh, listen, if you live as a sinner, alienated from God, if you've never come to Christ, you're on the losing side of this thing. The Bible teaches us that uh, those of us that have put our faith... Oh, I know it don't look like it right now. You see, the God of this world, He's still running things right now. But can I remind you that there's another God, and He's the God of gods, the Bible says. He ranks above the God of this world. And the Bible teaches us that there's coming a day when Jesus Christ will return in power and in glory uh, with the armies of heaven. Oh, I'm about to preach a different message. I wasn't even planning on it. Uh, but uh, we find that, uh, uh, that all through the Word of God, this parallels Rahab showed this kindness. She believed that God's army was going to win. They said, I'll tell you what, Rahab, this is what you do. You take a scarlet uh, a scarlet uh, thread and I want you to hang it down out of your window. Now, I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I don't see how. You know, the Bible teaches that all the walls fell. It, it wasn't strategic demolition. We have no record of the nation of Israel taking and setting dynamite at certain areas and going by and checking and seeing where that red cord was hanging and saying, let's not put no charges around this house. This is Rahab the harlot. That's not how it happened. The Bible teaches that when now on that seventh day they blew their trumpets, that the walls began to tumble, but that scarlet cord preserved her. Now, you say, that's miraculous, preacher. Let me tell you something more miraculous. Uh, The Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth, uh, and He uh, used a scarlet cord of His blood that He shed on Calvary to reach out like a lifeline to you and I. If we'd put our faith in that blood that He shed for us, there's coming a day of wrath. But when that day of wrath comes, you and I, we're not going to be here. You say, you believe that? The Bible says we're not appointed under wrath. We're not going to be here when that day comes. You say, why is that? Because we put our faith in the Son of God. Because we've let that scarlet cord be wrapped around on our hearts. That's miraculous, friend. 
Rahab was from Jericho. We find two blind men sitting outside the walls of Jericho uh, in the Gospels that cried out to the Son of God, just poor beggars with not a chance in the world. That's the kind of folks hung out in Jericho. We find out about another man that left Jericho. He might have figured it was too bad in there, and he was trying to get out. I don't know. Uh, but in the parable that Christ told, he goes on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, and he gets caught amongst thieves. Uh, and they uh, beat him, and they leave him half dead. And the Bible teaches us of a good Samaritan that comes along and raises him up. And then here we find this insignificant man, Zacchaeus. You say, what you getting at, preacher? I'm saying that Jericho was a low place with low people. It was a low place. You couldn't get much lower than Jericho. I mean, it was the bottom of the barrel. Can I say that I'm so thankful? Oh, I'm so thankful that God's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. And no matter how deep that barrel is, God can scrape the bottom of it. No matter how rotten you are, God can save you. I, I, listen, I've never met anybody too rotten for the Lord to save. I've met a few that was too good for the Lord to save. Amen? You know what I'm saying. I've met a few that didn't think they needed the Lord to save them because they had their own righteousness. You know, they went to church or they was baptized or, uh, you know, I don't know, they, they dressed up nice, whatever it might have been. And they didn't need the Lord to save them, so they didn't get saved. But I've never met a one that was so rotten, so wicked, so vile, so filthy that the blood of Christ couldn't wash him clean. He's always able. It was a low place. But I find that not only do we see a loathsome promise and a low place, but we see a little person. The Bible says of Zacchaeus that he was of small stature. I don't know this, but I think we all kind of assume it, and I think it's maybe accurate that you can kind of picture Zacchaeus with sort of a Napoleon complex. You know what I mean? He was a tax collector, and a lot of times, and listen, if you're of short stature, God bless you, there ain't nothing wrong with that. Uh, somebody's got to clean out from under the, the chairs, amen? Nothing wrong with that. I mean that. I mean, that God makes us all different sizes. Some people, he makes tall and handsome and strapping and debonair like me, and then there's everybody else. I know. That's okay. But, uh, you know, I, I, I see, you know, that a lot of times when you take somebody whose entire world is wrapped up in their appearance and their, their physique and their talent and their strength and their ability, and you give them a little bit of power, you know what they do? They go overkill with it. Uh, what, did, what did Zacchaeus say? He said, if I have wronged any through false accusation. Sounds to me like probably he had. Sounds to me like there may have been a few that uh, came by and looked old Zacchaeus, maybe said something like shorty or squirt or something like that. Said, how's the weather down there, you know? And he said, all right, let's just uh, do what the IRS does today. Let's just audit you, amen? <laughs> no, you see, he was an insignificant person. He was probably the type that had been walked on his whole life. And that is what drove him to get to the place that he was at. Can I say that I'm thankful God cares about insignificant people? I wasn't significant. You weren't significant. I don't know. If the President of the United States is sitting here, I don't see him, amen? If the mayor's sitting here, I don't see him. Probably us, if we were wiped off the face of the earth. Now listen now, if we were wiped off the face of the earth, aside from our friends and family, there probably wouldn't be a big hiccup about it for most of us. I'm being honest. I don't expect the flags at half-mast when I die. Hold the celebrations down to a quiet minimum if you can, but, but God cares about insignificant people. I see not only Zacchaeus' situation, but I see Zacchaeus' opposition. And I want you to notice three things, and, and I'm not even preaching yet, but notice these three. I want you to notice three things that tried to keep him from getting a glimpse of Jesus. One of them was the crowd. 
The Bible says in verse number 3, it says, And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press. Now, that's not talking about the the three main sewage lines, ABC, NBC, CBS. That's talking about the, the crowd, the multitude. Can I say that there's a lot of people... There's a lot of people that could see Jesus except for the multitude of quote-unquote religious noise in the day that we live in. Boy, everybody's religious now, aren't they? Everybody's religious. Everybody's got some kind of religion. If they don't, they've got atheism as a religion. And a lot of them are more dedicated, passionate, and militant than a lot of Christians are, sad to say. Everybody's got a religion now. Everybody's got a belief system. But can I say to you that to this very day, It'll be like this through all eternity, that Jesus Christ is still the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by Him. Now, that's what He said. That's not what I said. That's what He said in John chapter 14. Those aren't my words. Those are His. That's what the holy, inspired Word of God says. I know that ruffles feathers with a lot of this ecumenical world, but that's the reality of it, is that He is the way, the truth, and the life. So I see not only the crowd, but I see the critics says in verse number 7, when Zacchaeus came down, says, And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. Now, they were murmuring against our Lord, but can I say to you that any time a, a, a boy gets saved or a girl gets saved, any time you've got a new convert, there's always critics. There's always the profession police somewhere. Amen? You know who I'm talking about. There's always somebody. You say, preacher, don't you believe in conviction and repent? Oh, yes, I do. And I also believe that it's as simple as childlike faith as well. And you always get these profession police that come around, and they want to critique, and they want to look. And then you get that crowd that can't hardly believe it. Some of you that got saved out of a a, a pretty rotten and muddy pit, you know who I'm talking about. That crowd that you'd tell them, I got saved, and they'd still try to hand you a beer. I got saved, and they'd still try to tell you a dirty joke. I got saved, and they'd still try to put something, uh, put some drugs in your hand. And then eventually they said, well, look at you. You all got religion, didn't you? you look at you. You're really somebody. Now, there's always critics. And let me tell you something. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of people in this world that will die and go to hell for the opinion of other people. A lot of people in this world. They'll die and go to hell because they're too wrapped up in what everybody around them thinks. Let me tell you something. I made my mind up as a 10-year-old boy that I wasn't going to die and go to hell for anybody. Can I say it again? I wasn't going to die and go to hell for anybody. I wasn't going to die and go to hell because I was afraid what my friends thought, afraid what my family thought, afraid what uh, my acquaintances thought. I made up my mind that nobody was worth dying and going to hell for. I was going to Jesus. I see the critics, but I see something else. And this, you might laugh when I say this, but I see the critters. And no, I'm not talking about church members either. Did you know that this sycamore tree, it's more commonly known as a sycamore fig tree. And if you were to look at it, uh, pictures of it, you can get online, you can look and, and find pictures of it. It's a great broad tree with low limbs. Let me say this, and this isn't my message. But I'm thankful God has put some low limbs down there for those of us that need it, aren't you? I'm thankful that Zacchaeus didn't have to run and shimmy halfway up the tree to get a foothold. I'm glad that even even a little child, if they're sincere, can grab hold of a limb and get on. You see, it had great low limbs and it was abundant with fruit. About two to three inches in diameter. They almost look like like apricots or, or peaches, if you were to look at them. And uh, it was just abundant with these fruit. 
Well, anytime you got fruit, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like church, amen? Anytime you got food, you got people. And so anytime you had fruit in a tree, you had critters. You had birds and you had bugs and you had various things that would dwell in it. But let me tell you something. There was another creature that would come and, and he wasn't praying on the fruit. He was praying on the fruit eaters. Sycamore trees were real bad for serpents. Can I tell you something? Can I tell you that anywhere God's hanging around, Satan is sure to follow. Can I say that any time a church is doing something for the Lord, I, I've heard people say, well, we didn't ever have, uh, you know, we didn't ever fight Satan like this before. Maybe he wasn't doing nothing before. Amen? Yeah. People say, well, you know, at, at Mama and Papa's church, we never fought Satan. Places like that. Well, that's because the biggest thing they had was an election committee or something. Amen? Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, when it gets like this, I'm always torn between moving on or digging in. And I guess I'll dig in. Yeah, a lot of these churches out here that don't do anything but fuss and fight and count the dollars in their bank, Satan isn't worried about them. He don't care about them. These churches that they get their little clique and their little group together, heaven forbid they ever go out and knock on a door or hand out a track. Satan ain't showing up at their door. He's already got them. He ain't worried about that. These churches around here that ain't no different than the lodges, that ain't no different than, than, the, than the mason's home, ain't worried about that. Satan ain't worried about that. He's got them. He ain't worried about them. You know what they say, any old dead fish will float downstream. He ain't worried about them. But now you get a church that wants to start doing something for Jesus Christ, all of a sudden them serpents start showing up. I'm right, ain't I? I don't know whether I, I, I don't, I mean, I, I know I'm right because I know it's biblical, but I don't know in your mind whether I'm right or wrong, but I'm just going to stay preaching on it till we get in a good place, amen? Satan ain't, wor- the Satan ain't worried about those churches. He's already, these churches around here that ain't nothing, ain't no different than the bars downtown, Satan ain't worried about them. Go to a lot of these churches, think you've walked into the Cotton Eye Joe. Smoke, lasers. You go into a lot of these churches, you think you've walked into some kind of beatnik hippie coffee shop somewhere. Amen? You'll go in, you expect the preacher to be up there lighting up a doobie. Right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Satan ain't worried about these social clubs. He's worried about churches that are preaching the Word of God. He's worried about churches that are trying to reach people. And anywhere where God's at, you can better believe that the serpent's going to show up pretty soon. All right, you amid me. I'll move on. Amen. Somebody said, if I'll run a lap, maybe it'll close. <laughs> I want to show you three things that I see in this passage. I want you to notice, first off, a divine confrontation. How did Zacchaeus come to know Christ? Look at verse number two. Notice his description. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. Zacchaeus, before he met Christ, would have been defined that way. He was a rich man, he had prominence, he had prosperity, but he was missing something in his life, wasn't he? Because we see in the next verse his desire. Look what it says very carefully. It says, and he sought, that means he wanted to. He sought to see Jesus, who he was. He wanted to get a glimpse. Let me tell you something, friend. You know why it's so important that we live like Christians? Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. There's a lot of lost sinners out here that are just looking to get a glimpse to see who he is. Isn't that right? A lot of sinners, that they don't, man, they hear all these things. They hear all this stuff about Bible Christianity, 
And they're just dying to meet a real Bible Christian. That's why we're defeating ourselves when we get out in the world and start living exactly like the world. We're never going to reach anyone that way. Zacchaeus said, I want to see who he is. I'm just trying to get a glimpse. If I could just see him, it'd change everything. We see not only that, we see his decision. What did he do? I believe every sinner will do this. And it may not be defined with coming to an altar. Uh, It may be uh, at a pew. It may be out in your everyday life. People saved in all sorts of strange geographical locations. But notice what he does. It says in verse uh, number 4, it says, And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. Let me tell you what every sinner is going to do if they're going to come to know Christ. They're going to have to come to him. They're going to have to go to him. They're going to have to make the decision that they don't want to live a sinner anymore. They don't want to die and go to hell. They want to come to Christ. Every sinner. When I got saved, that's what I did. When you got saved, that's what you did. You made up your mind. You didn't want to die in your sins. You wanted to know Christ. You said, I won't die this way. I'll come to Jesus. We see a divine confrontation. I want you to notice, secondly, we see a divine call. Notice what it says in verse number 5. It says, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. Let me tell you something, that blesses my heart. I mean, man, that blesses me. If that don't bless you, your blesser's torn up. Look what it says. When he came to that place, he looked up. He looked up. You know why? Listen, listen to what I'm about to say. You know why you came looking for him? Because he was looking for you. Oh, I'm not trying to get into Calvinism. I'm not talking about uh, predestination uh, to salvation. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm merely saying this. He said uh, uh, that if any man uh, cometh unto me, it's because my Father draws him. Draws him. You don't have the capacity in of yourself. And you can call that whatever you want. You can call it total depravity if you want. I do believe we're totally depraved. I don't believe what the Calvinists believe about total depravity, but I do believe we're totally depraved. Amen? I do believe that. And I believe that the only reason I knew I was a sinner is because the Word of God convicted and showed me that I was a sinner. Now, if you don't believe that, you have a problem with the Word of God because the Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The only way I knew I was a sinner is the Word of God told me I was a sinner. And when he told me, listen, when I came looking for him, he's already looking for me. Look what happens. Notice this is a personal call. What does he say? Does he say, hey, you? Hey, fell up in the tree? Hey, shorty? He says, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. It was a personal call. Can I say that people don't get saved wholesale? Right? They don't get saved wholesale. If I believe what some of these churches believed about salvation through baptism, I'd line everybody up and just hose them down with a water hose. No, you don't get saved that way. I've already, I don't know if I've preached you mad or glad, but one way or the other, something, something's clicking here. That's not how people get saved. They get saved individually and personally. You say, preacher, does that mean that two or three or uh, four hundred people couldn't get saved at the same, no, they can get saved at the same time, by all means. But it's because they've each individually made a decision to come to Jesus Christ. It was a personal call, but notice it was a plain call. What did he say? He said, make haste and come down. He, didn't, he told him not only what he needed to do, but how he needed to do it. This right here, not everybody believes this. But you'll find it in the Word of God, so listen carefully. I believe that God will reveal to the heart of a sinner what he needs to do to come to know Christ. Now... Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying there's no place for the soul winner. Of course there's a place for the soul winner. 
And I'm not saying a man's always able to articulate everything. But you know that I've seen people get saved praying the goofiest prayers that you've ever heard. I mean, listen, I'm talking about people that you tell in their life that they've gotten saved. Praying the goofiest prayers that you've ever heard. I was in youth ministry. Amen? I was in youth ministry. You don't believe the things kids say. Well, maybe you would if you've raised them. And they've said some of the goofiest things. I mean, it didn't follow along the back of the track or whatever, you know, we were expecting. They didn't say, you know, they didn't read through and say, Dear Lord Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner. And da, 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 da. But in, the, in their best words, you see, their heart knew what to do. Their heart knew what to do. I'm not saying there's no place for the soul winner. We need to take a track. We need to take a Bible. We need to show people so they can see it in the Word of God. Because that's how people get grounded in the faith. But I'm merely saying this, and I probably have an insight on this that a lot of people don't. When I got saved, I was all by myself. I don't remember a word that I said. I'm being honest. I don't remember a word that I said. I remember this. I remember that I didn't want to die and go to hell. You get these people out here that say, well, you know, people don't get saved because they're scared of hell. I take issue with that, friend. I was scared of hell when I got saved. I I knew God loved me. I'm thankful God loves me. But when I got saved, what motivated me, you know what the Bible says about Noah, that he was moved with fear in preparing the ark. You don't think fear can move people? Jude said, and some save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Sure, fear moved me. Fear moved me. That's the only thing I remember. I remember the date. I remember the time. I remember, and I know that God saved me on that day. But I'm sure if you went and rolled back the time and the history and heard the prayer that that 10-year-old boy said, they probably wouldn't print it in any books. It probably wouldn't measure up to the theological standards of the seminary professors of today. But the sheer reality is this. God spoke and convicted and convinced my heart of what I needed to do in coming to Him. It was a plain call, but I want you to notice it was a promising call. Oh, I, I wish I had a whole nother hour and a half to preach this, but I, but I don't. I know. Get worried. Sit down. Sir. No, I'm joking. I want you to notice it's a promising call. What did he say? He said, come down, Zacchaeus. He said, I'm going to abide at your house. You know what the Bible says in John 14, 23? That if a man love me and keep my words, my father and I, Abide with them. Abide with them. They got it all wrong in verse number 7. They said in verse number 7, He goeth to be a guest with a sinner. And you know, the world, let me tell you something, Bible Christianity gets this world all tore up. Do you know why? The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, we was talking about it in Sunday school, uh, Beloved, or it says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. The love of God is an alien thing to this world. And you know what the world says? The world looks at religion and says, Surely I need to dress myself up to come to God. Surely I need to get rid of the sin. Surely I need to go. I need to cut my hair. I need to uh, put on clean clothes. I need to get all the liquor and all the booze and all the drugs out and all of the illicit relationships. i got to get rid of all that to come to God. And God comes along and says, No, that's not what you have to do. You have to admit you can't get rid of that and come to me and I'll save you and take it away from you. That's paradoxical to the world's understanding. And they said, they said, he goeth to be a guest with a sinner. 
That's how they say. That's how uppity people say things. Sinner, you know, sinner. And I can just see the tender, compassionate eyes of our Lord and Savior as they're flooded with flames and fire. And He looks over at those Pharisees and says, "No, I'm not going to be a guest. I'm going to abide with Him. <laughs> no, I'm not just stopping in. I'm going to set up house with Him. <laughs> that's our. That's my Jesus right there. That's my Lord." He took a lost sinner like Zacchaeus, and he can take a lost sinner like you. And he don't just come to stop by and enlighten you. He comes to set up house and to take a residency in your life. We see it was a promising call. But I want you to notice, finally, we see a divine conversion. What happened? What happened to Zacchaeus? And I'll just touch on these, and I'll let you go. Shoney's will be opening the lunch buffet soon. It says in verse 6, and he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. He heeded the call. Zacchaeus did what the Lord told him to do. A lot of people are going to die and go to hell because they can't come to terms with the idea of doing what anyone tells them to do. That is a natural rebellion within the human heart. You know why it is that the, that the first word that everybody's kids learn is, is no? Two reasons. One, they hear it all the time. No, 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 no. But then two, there's a defiance within the human heart. You don't have to teach a child to do wrong. You teach them to do right. They always, and I'm not, listen, I mean, I know there's somebody out here, uh, think, you know, there's people out here saying that babies lie and whatever, and we can argue about it if you want. I'm not really interested in that one way or the other. But you're blind if you don't see and realize that rebellion is ingrained within the human heart. It's born within us. We rebel, we turn, we buck against authority. It was said one time, and I don't remember all the statistics, and I don't remember the exact quote, but I'm going to give you what I know of it. It said that a police department, uh, and I believe it was the state of Michigan, once did a study. And they spent about two years and millions of dollars trying to get to the core of juvenile delinquency. And they sponsored all sorts of social studies and all sorts of uh, sociological examinations and psychiatrists. And this is the conclusion they came to. They said, man is inherently wicked. He is a rebel at his very core. And if something does not intervene to change the trajectory of his course, they will all wind up delinquent in their characteristics. That's a secular study will tell you that. I didn't need a secular study to tell me that. The Word of God told me that there's a way that seemeth right unto a man. The ends thereof are the ways of death. That's the reason a lot of people die and go to hell. They just can't cope with the idea of having to bow that knee. But I'm here to tell you, friend, that you'll bow it. One way or the other, you'll bow it. Philippians chapter 2 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every one. Your knee will bow. Will it bow now at the cross? Or will it bow later at the great white throne judgment? Your knee will bow. He heeded the call. But notice verse 8. He demonstrated a change. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Some of you say, Preacher, does that mean if a person don't start giving real good, they're not saved? No, that's not what it's saying. You see, it was within Zacchaeus' characteristic to cheat people and to gain money by doing it. And the last thing you could have ever imagined old Zacchaeus doing was turned around and saying, if I've taken anything from you, I won't just restore it, I'll restore it fourfold. There was a change in his 
behavior. There's people that have tried their dead level best. They've taken their little pen knife like Jehudai in the book of Jeremiah and tried to cut out every passage that they can find that proves that there's a change after conversion. But they'll never do it, friend. It's settled in heaven and it's settled right here. There is always a change after a person gets saved. I didn't say they're perfect. I didn't say they're sinless. I didn't say there's no room to grow in grace. Of course there is. But let me tell you something. Something as big as God moves into your life, and it shows. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. It's still in the book. It changes a man. And then notice, not only do we see that he heeded uh, the call and he demonstrated a change, but finally he received a confirmation. Look what it says in verses 9 and 10. Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, forasmuch as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man... Is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Can I say to you that I know a lot of people do struggle with assurance of their salvation. But I believe based upon incontrovertible biblical evidence that it's possible for a man to know that he's been saved by the grace of God. John said, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that you're saved. There's a lot of people that have stayed in their lost condition for years based upon this lie. Well, nobody really knows. I know. I know. I know that I'm saved. I don't know that I'm always living right. I don't know what tomorrow holds. There may be areas in my life that God has to chastise and break me up. But listen, friend, I know that I'm saved. I know what happened on December 1st, 1997. I know that God saved me. I know this. And you may be sitting here and you may say, Preacher, I made profession after profession, but if I was to be honest before heaven, I'd have to admit I don't know for sure. Can I encourage you by saying that you can know? You don't have to pillow your head in fear every night. You don't have to break out in the cold sweats every time the invitation starts. You can know that you're saved. You say, how do you know, preacher? Well, the same way Zacchaeus knew, Jesus told him. What does it say in John 5, 24? He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me is past, the Bible says, from death unto life and shall not come into condemnation. The word of God can give us the confidence. John said, these things have I written unto you that you may know. We can know for sure that we're saved. Or maybe you're here and you floated through life sitting there thinking, well, nobody really knows. That's a lie straight out of hell, friend. Plenty of people know. Oh, there's plenty of people that don't know. Some of them are saved, but they're not grounded in the Word of God. Some of them think they're saved, but have never been saved. But we can know for sure that we've been saved by the grace of God. We want to take a Bible and show you how. And we can, not because of who we are, oh, but because of who He is.